This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly with our last episode of the week. Thank you for all of you who got in touch about yesterday's interview with James Kanagasorium. Um, we'll get him back because he was very interesting. You had quite a few questions that we didn't uh, get around to putting to him. So we'll, we'll do that again another time. And uh, as I've already mentioned on the podcast this week, uh, next week, Times Radio is one year old. Uh, and we really want to hear from you about what you've liked about Times Radio, maybe what you don't like, your favourite show, mid-mornings, uh, 10 to 1. Uh, uh, we t- particularly want a video or audio recording. So get your phone out while you're listening to this. You're probably listening to it on your phone. Uh, record a voice note or a video telling us what you've enjoyed about Times Radio and email it to studio at times.radio. And uh, we'll play it out on the radio next week. Right, coming up, we are going to talk... Yes, we'll talk about Matt Hancock and mm, Hans Face Space. Uh, that's coming up. We're also going to talk about Dying Well, a Times Radio listener who got in touch with us last week, Claire, uh, former civil servant. She's living with uh, cancer and wants us to rethink the way we talk about death and dying. Uh, so that's coming up on the podcast. In a moment, uh, the columnist panel. But don't forget... If you haven't yet got a Times subscription, which I find very hard to believe, we've got a sale on right now. You can get 50% off your first six months of your subscription, uh, but the sale ends on the 29th of June next Tuesday. So get a wriggle on, listen to the episode, uh, sign up for a subscription. Just go to the times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Right. Now, it's time for our columnist panel. Today, it's Josh Glancy from the Sunday Times and Rachel Cunliffe from the New Statesman. Now, uh, the, well, I suppose question number one is, come on, pull yourselves together. Is having an affair in and of itself a sackable offence? Rachel? No, absolutely not. Good. I'm very relaxed. I'm very relaxed on these things. Uh, life is complicated. Marriages are complicated. We don't even know it was an affair. For all we know, he had an arrangement with his wife and she was perfectly happy with it, not happy with it, getting splashed all over the front of the sun, obviously. We just don't know. It's not our business. What is our business is that at the time when this 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 kiss took place and was captured on camera, uh, there was a sex ban for basically anyone who didn't live with their partner that had lasted most of the last year due to COVID restrictions that banned you from being inside with uh, a, a, another adult that you didn't work with. Uh, so maybe that's the loophole there that he was working with her and, and therefore it's fine. But the, the hypocrisy of saying to, to millions of people and particularly young people, you can't have sex for a year because the pandemic is so important and then getting caught on camera snogging your aid, not great. 
Uh, yes. Uh, so that's so you think that's the difference. It's fine to have an affair. Maybe everything was, uh, you know, but it, it, not having an affair with someone you're working with is the issue. Uh, not having an affair with someone you're working with when you've made it illegal for anyone else in the country to, to act as you do. It's, it's the do as I do as I say and not as I do attitude. Um, and uh, I, I interviewed a sex and relationships advice columnist a few weeks back and he said um, he writes about politics a lot and people always say, stick to sex, we, we read you for, for sex and relationships. And he goes, I'll stay out of politics when the politicians stay out of sex. And unfortunately, <laughs> Matt Hancock was one of, the, one of the politicians talking about the importance of only being with people in, quote, established relationships. Um, and, and has been very, uh, very pro-COVID restrictions uh, throughout all the last year. So to, to see that he is expecting other people to, to follow those rules and not have any kind of intimate physical contact with people they don't live with, but not following those rules himself, that I think is the issue. It's hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, there were so many people literally counted down the days being able to hug ch grandchildren, grandparents, and, and, and so on. Uh, in this or boyfriends and girlfriends. Yes, exactly right. Yes, your other, yes. Um, uh, Josh, what do you th where do you stand on this? Should Matt Hancock uh go? I mean, I think Matt Hancock's goose was rather cooked already, wasn't it? I mean, it, you know, it, when you get called totally effing hopeless by the Prime Minister and it gets leaked, I mean, I, I think his star had fallen. Um, but this, you know, and it will be difficult for Boris Johnson, of all people, to sack him on grounds of sort of immorality and extramarital affairs. So I think uh, at some point we will bid farewell to Matt Hancock. But, you know... He has bizarrely become the kind of symbol, the sort of figure through so many of our pandemic hopes, fears, frustrations seem to follow, sort of flow through him. Um, he's this sort of partridge-like figure, isn't he? Um, and, you know, this is just another point of, you know, it's just another moment for, you know, he's, he, he has become almost the dominant figure of the, of the pandemic in Britain. I'm not quite sure what that says about us, but... Well, I suppose that is one of the things that in the past, when there have been these sorts of stories uh, about government ministers and um, extra amounts of it, you know, most people have never heard of anyone involved. I mean, Brooks Newmark, I think, was was not even as well known as his paisley pajamas by the time you know by the time that all of our. But because of the pandemic, Matt Hancock is a much more um, uh, you know he's a very very well known figure, and I suppose that does make a difference. The other thing that struck me, which I thought was interesting, and is there's points as a sort of broader uh, argument, was something that Grant Shapps said on Times Radio Breakfast uh, this morning. Uh, let's just take a listen to when he was trying to sort of defend Matt Hancock. What somebody does in their private life is their private um, business. I mean, technically right, except what we've all been doing in our private lives has been the government's business for the last mm. uh, fifteen months, Rachel. I would love the government to, to leave us to our private business. I would I would love the rules on um, whether you can go to your kids' sports day or if we if we go back into winter restrictions on whether you can have your your partner or your friends over in your over in your house. I, I would love that to 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 end. Unfortunately, that's not the universe we've been living in for the last year. Matt Hancock has been one of the strongest proponents of a government getting very, very involved in people's lives, people's homes, people's bedrooms. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that a, a year ago when it was Neil Ferguson who got caught travelling across London uh, midway through the first lockdown to to see his his girlfriend, who was married, but that was a separate point. Um, Matt Hancock was, was one of the people in the government who was pushing most most strongly for consequences for, for Ferguson and who actually seemed to suggest at one point that maybe the police might want to get involved 
given that he'd broken COVID restrictions. And this is him breaking his own rules. The, the, the hugging wasn't allowed back then. Um, it was still before you were allowed inside with a with another person that you didn't work with. So the idea that he gets a free pass on this because it was his private life when he hasn't extended that courtesy and that respect to other people in, in government, let alone to, to the public, I think that's a very weak argument. Just, do you think at some point we'll have to sort of recalibrate our relationship with the government again? Everybody in the government, Matt Hancock's currently recalibrating all of his relations. But this idea of, you know, before, it's such a weird mindset change that before doing anything, we've had to basically stop and think, does Matt Hancock let us do this? You know, <laughs> have we got too many people coming to the pub? Uh, do we need to be inside or outside? Have we got the app? Have we, you know, um, uh, has everyone been, you know, and that idea of, of, you know, I suppose it goes back to the ultimate sort of principle of liberty, you know, that you you are free to do whatever you you want to do uh, unless uh, ruled otherwise. We've ended up with a thing of like every single act we've had to sort of double check if it's if it's within the rules. And at some point, hopefully, we'll be able to throw that off. I think we can all agree that we need less Matt Hancock in our lives, but the it, 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 it's been uh, it's been really apparent to me coming back from america where you know obviously there are lots of have been restrictions but nothing like the level of invasive health bureaucracy we have in this country much more relying on people to make their own decisions um sometimes they make bad decisions but it is astonishing to me how reliant people have become on central government on decisions being made by sage nerve tag the cabinet matt hancock boris johnson uh, I think it's quite, I, I, I'm a little bit troubled by it, to be honest, because um, it, I find it pretty odd. I'm not, I'm not used to sort of having the government intrude in my life constantly in the UK. And uh, I think we all need, I think we need to be quite vigilant about rolling this stuff back because as we know, governments, you know, like power, they're not, they don't give it up voluntarily. So I think, I think as a country, we need to, you know, we need to start being quite serious about rolling back these intrusions. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? At what point do we have to sort of take back control of our of our own lives? To to coin a phrase, now, <laughs> months ago, um, I, I, I think the, the 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 case for for lockdowns and for saving lives and for trying to uh, reduce the, the the spread of COVID very, very justifiable. But the attitude now that we should check with the government whether our social lives are are ethical. Um, we, we used to take all kinds of risks and all kinds of risks to other people, whether that was uh, how we acted during the winter flu season or when driving or anything like that. We used to accept that there was there was risk involved in, in life and it wasn't for the government to micromanage how many people you could sit with at the pub uh, or, or the rest of it. Certainly the idea of thinking about Matt Hancock before making, making decisions about your romantic life is, is absolutely terrifying. And if it takes this level of hypocrisy to get us to see, hang on, this is really weird. This is creepy. Even in America, where they have social conservatives who are far more fundamentalist and, and involved in politics than, than we do here, they didn't have those kind of problems. I'm going to say again that sex has been illegal for single people who don't live with their partners for most of the last year. This is mad. And yeah, we should be fighting back very hard against it. And we should be fighting hard uh, against the idea that we might be going back into restrictions in winter, which is something that Matt Hancock himself has suggested not to do with COVID, but to do with the risk of flu and, 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 and flu season. Um, the idea that we could be going back into this uh, and have politicians continue to keep that level of control over our, our personal lives and our social lives, really creepy. 
Yes, I suspect there's <laughs> there's probably quite a lot of people who agree with that. Well, let's move away from Matt Hancock um, uh, for a moment, uh, said everyone in the government. Um, uh, and if he does leave, if he does end up leaving his health secretary, he's going to need another job. But all the jobs have been taken by George Osborne. He's got another one. <laughs> he's now chairing uh, the British Museum. Uh, where do we think George Osborne is in the cultural? Because obviously, you know, the museums, what is in them, who runs them, what you can say about them, seeing them, uh, is uh, is a sort of um, matter of contention. Uh, is this a good appointment, Josh, do you think? George Osborne's really good at getting jobs, isn't he? Um, I, I think he probably strikes me as a little bit like having someone like Tim Davy at the BBC. He's sort of centre-right, isn't he? He's a kind of you know, he's a cosmopolitan Tory, but I think when push comes to shove, he's, he's not going to be on the, the council culture side of things. Um, so, you know, for those who, who think the culture wars have gone a bit far, uh, other than sort of the woke movement has gone a bit far, they're probably quite pleased to have someone like George Osborne at the helm of the British Museum. What I was really struck by was just the like sheer, like A-grade chumocracy. There was a very good piece in the Times by George Grills, just sort of linking together everyone who's on the board of the the British Museum with all the other things, the many hundreds of things that George Osborne is on the board of. Uh, and it really is, it does just illustrate, I mean, he really sits at the centre of the British establishment more than just about anyone uh, in the country. And it is quite quite astonishing when you see it all laid out. Yeah, let me, I was just uh, trying to, so yeah, it, it, I was, even I was quite surprised about how, so uh, the, the recruitment process for appointing George Osborne was led by Baroness Shafik, who was Deputy Governor of the Bank of England when he was Chancellor. Lord Sassoon is the Deputy Chairman of the Museum's Board. He was a Treasury Minister under George Osborne. Another board member is Philip Hildebrand. Uh, he is the Vice Chairman of BlackRock, the world's largest investment fund, which employed George Osborne for four years on a salary of £650,000. And sort of on and on it goes. Uh, he now has nine jobs altogether, uh, George Osborne. So maybe, maybe he, could, you know, he, could, he could spare one of those to Matt Hancock. I'm sure he could. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? I think that if George Osborne were going to run a CV masterclass, I would 100% sign up for that, I think. <laughs> I think it's. I want. I want to know his secret. I think it's. It's wonderful. Um, Josh did a, a shout out there to a, to a Times piece, so I'm going to do a shout out to a New Statesman piece that we have up today um, by one of my colleagues on exactly this, pointing out that actually the uh, the, the the business of museum management right now is um, all about funding and getting funding and. Uh, and, and making sure that you are still eligible for, for government funding, which is something that George Osborne, as former Chancellor, knows a huge amount about. And so actually, I think this is quite a savvy move from the British Museum for that reason, getting somebody who understands how that process works and who to talk to and has the context, the context to make sure that uh, the museum's financial future is secured. Um, and also on the culture wars front, I think it's smart as well because he's not a, a, a radical reactionary um, ban Oxford students for deciding if they want a picture of the Queen or not um, up in their common room kind of person. But he is a conservative and he is, I think, very much on the uh, robust free speech, proud of Britain's cultural history side of things. So I think that uh, that protects the British Museum somewhat from um, criticism that I'm absolutely certain is, is going to be coming its way. They have somebody uh, on, on, on their board in control of things who understands where this argument is going and can insulate them from, from some of that criticism. So I do think actually this is one of the jobs where he has perhaps more of a skill set than, than, than uh, some of his, his other roles. And I think he's taking over 
from from somebody who who was at the FT and so former Evening Standard. I mean, it's not it's not that unusual. Um, how he's getting these jobs, though, I I, I really want to know. I, I think we all do, don't we? <laughs> Maybe you should follow Dominic Cummings' uh, example and set up a Substack, and people can subscribe to <laughs> George Osborne's jobs tips. Um, uh... I would read that. <laughs> it's absolutely extraordinary. Josh Clancy and Rachel Cunliffe there and don't forget you can read Josh in the Sunday Times every week just get yourself a Times subscription go online it's 50% off for the first six months just go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box up next let's talk about death hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This time, I think it was this time last week, Claire Fisher, Times Radio listener, got in touch uh, and said she was listening to the show while uh, having her latest bout of chemo. Told me to make sure it was a good one. Uh, we should certainly put the pressure on. But then Claire got in touch and said she wanted to talk about this subject. And Claire, I'm delighted to say, joins me now. Morning, Claire. Morning. So explain your, your situation, first of all, and then we'll come on to the, the campaign that you've uh, you've been launching. But uh, explain um, when you first got your, your cancer diagnosis. So um, the background is I'm, I'm a former civil servant and I've worked in policy pretty much all my life. So I had the very fortunate gig of being in the Cayman Islands, working with the government there. It was meant to be, you know, a sort of work holiday, luxury, exciting event. Um, all was going very well. I, I, I worked the Monday as normal. Uh, Tuesday, I thought maybe I had a tummy bug and I had to cancel and that was really complicated and I felt really, really bad. By Wednesday, I called an ambulance. Um, so I found myself in the hospital in the Cayman Islands with a bowel obstruction. Um, and to cut a very long story short, I woke up on the Saturday of that week having had bowel surgery in Miami um, with the news that I'd had a complete bowel obstruction because of a stage four cancer tumour. So, yeah, went away thinking I was well and, and working um, and came home about three weeks later uh, to some fairly life changing news. That was November 2018. So I've been living with stage four bowel cancer now for two and a half years. Wow. I mean, that's quite. Uh, and so you're now <laughs> you're now back in the UK. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been abroad since. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the two things weren't connected. And so um, uh, what, what treatment are you going through? How is life at the moment um, uh, with uh, living with stage four bowel cancer? Yeah, so I'm actually, I would say I'm more well now than I was then, which I think will surprise people because you assume there's a sort of straight downward trajectory once you get sick. So after that bowel surgery, I've also had liver surgery and I've had a hysterectomy to deal with the spread of cancer and more chemo than I can count. Um, so I'm currently on fortnightly chemo. That's been the case since January. I'll have a break for the summer. And then after that, I don't know yet. So I mean, fortnight. I mean, are you because I know you know family and friends who've been through this. If it's fortnight, the, the sort of the roller coaster of you start feeling well, and there's another bout of it that comes round, and then you feel terrible again. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Just when you're feeling better, they pump you full of poison, and you start feeling crap again. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it does fully wipe me out for about forty-eight hours, and then it's about a week before I'm properly back to me again. So I get a kind of well week every fortnight. God, it is rubbish. And then to make matters even worse, you, you've been listening to me on the radio while you've been... No, having... I love it. I'm a... <laughs> I, I, as I said, Matt, I am a, I'm a self-confessed Parliament geek. I am that person that plays old Lord Cert committees to make me feel calm in the middle of the night. So. <laughs> wow. It's, it's okay. Even I think yeah. that's a bit weird. Now, explain, yeah, <laughs> explain then, um, uh, given everything you've been going through uh, in your treatment and all that, rather than just getting through that... Uh, you're also now sort of campaigning, working, explain the Dying Well project, what you're trying to do. Yeah, to, to... OK, so so Dying Well is it's all about well-being. Um, as I said, I'm a civil servant, policy professional, really delighted to be working with the What Works Centre for Wellbeing as an associate for a number of years. So I suppose my go-to response when I deal with any problem is to look at the system, look at the problem, look at you know what's going on in it. And, and, and so dying well has almost become my final policy problem, I suppose. It's really struck me since I've got sick that the NHS is brilliant. They, they will offer me expensive drugs, extensive surgery, um, and will strive to do everything to improve the quantity of years I have, which I am hugely appreciative for. But actually, there's very little focus on what it means to live well while that's happening. Um, so all the things in terms of pain management, exercise, nutrition advice, kind of holistic care that actually makes my life worth living is outside of the NHS. It's hospice provision. And... I've realised that I am banging the demographic of people that can access good palliative care. Um, there's a real problem with inequality of access. So I am white, I'm middle class, I'm well educated, I can navigate the system. Um, I have cancer, I'm relatively young and I live near a, a hospice. But for lots of people, we, we know that about one in four people don't get the palliative care that they need. Hospice care is mostly provided by the charity sector, which given that the one kind of health intervention we're all going to need is somebody to help us die well, seems completely crazy. So dying well is all about how do we better understand how people live well and die well. We've found that there's just really a gap in the evidence so um i know you're going to talk to nancy in a little bit uh, the what work centers are, are for policy people to help understand evidence so we're just thinking really how can we 
get better evidence about what works? How can we make uh, policy better? How can we spend some of this huge amount of money <laughs> on things that are actually going to make people's lives better? And like you said, I mean, it, it will come to us all eventually. Mm. You're in a situation where it's sort of up more uppermost in your mind. How how long have you have you been told what your your prognosis is like? Yeah, well, this is really interesting. Um, one thing is uh, you don't really get told. People don't tend to tell you you're dying. Oncologists are very nervous about uh, taking away hope, I think, as they see it. And one of the things that I want to challenge is that death is not a failure of medicine. You know, we are all going to die at some point. So one of the things is to have these conversations and actually to encourage medics to have these conversations. Um, it's really hard to predict how long somebody's got to live. And that in itself is a policy problem. So they, when I was admitted to the hospital, they didn't think I could have the surgery. They, they thought I may be dead in a week. After the surgery, they realized that went fairly well. They thought a few months, maybe. Once I'd survived the first few months, the statistics are that 50% of people die within a year. In November last year, I was given my DS1500 form, which tells me officially that I've got less than six months to live. But actually today, I feel well. So I live on a rolling three-month basis. If I feel well today, I'm probably still going to be here in three months. But nobody knows. Um, so you've got statistics, but it's really, really hard. And that's why it's so hard to access things like benefits and palliative care and hospice care, because all those systems require you to jump through quite a specific jumping through hoops when when <laughs> bluntly a lot of the time you really don't feel like jumping through hoops yeah. as well well let's bring she mentioned nancy nancy hayes the executive director of what works uh well-being and is on the line as well hi nancy hi matt nice to be here today nice to have you with us and we've also got tanny gray thompson uh obviously multi-winning a medal winning paralympian but um uh, tanny you've also been speaking recently to your party parliamentary group on dying one this is a subject close to your heart too yeah Oh, sorry, sorry, Matt. Sorry, I, sorry. I thought you were just introduced. Apologies. Yeah. Just saying hello. Uh, yeah. What, what particularly is your interest in this, Tani? Um. So we're um going to be um asked to look at um legislation to change the law on assisted suicide, um this year in Parliament. Um, I'm against changing the law for lots of different reasons. Um, in terms of actually, it's very difficult to bring in safeguards and and to make it work and to protect the most vulnerable in society. But I think the things Claire's saying have been absolutely right in terms of access to palliative care, access to support. We know it's a postcode lottery um, and, and we don't talk about death because, quite frankly, I'm terrified of it. I don't know what's beyond it. And um, nobody wants to think about it when you have a terminal diagnosis. You're kind of forced to consider it in, in a different way. And, and I think actually we need to be doing an awful lot more to ensure that people are able to die well and pain-free and um, just think about those things. But, but at the moment, it seems to be, you know, it's, it's, we don't talk about it or the option is actually to bring in some form of assisted suicide or potentially even euthanasia, which doesn't deal with the problems that, that most of us are worried about. You're right. It's, it's sort of such an awkward thing. Even even having this conversation with Claire, and Claire got in touch and is, you know, she's doing extraordinary work on it. But it's, it does such a British, maybe is it a British thing that makes it so awkward to, to talk about it? Um, Nancy, explain what works well, uh, what works well-being is doing and your, your particular work in this area. So we're trying to explore what it means to live well throughout our lives, through all life stages. We talk a lot about having a good birth, the first thousand days of life. And actually, it's also about 
living well, working well, but also something that will happen to all of us is dying well. And not just for those that uh, are, are patients or, or are dying, but also for those that love them. So we, we know that bereavement and, um, and being part of being a carer, it also is a high risk for poor low poor well-being and high loneliness and so this is something that is not taken into account in our current understanding of valuation of the decisions that we make in healthcare and also we don't necessarily bring in all the non-healthcare things into this stage of life that actually can make a real difference to what it means to live well as an individual who is dying but also the, the families around them and those that love them. So we're trying to understand what matters most. We're spending huge amounts of money in the public sector, private sector, civil society. How do we understand that with the best possible research, the best possible practice and make a difference that really makes matters to everybody at some point in their lives, they will experience this. So I think where we have high profile debate, it's usually where we don't know the answers. And that's where what works can come in about bringing together that research, that practice and that policy making to make the best solutions for people and families. Um, Claire, you mentioned that you, 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 you had been a civil servant working in Whitehall before. Is there something wrong with the way that government works, uh, the way Whitehall works in the, you're, the, the treating? You know, we do things and they're like, that's a success. So that's been built or those numbers have gone up or. Um, uh, you know, there are metrics which we have to work towards and mm. targets and all that yeah. sort of thing. And once yeah. you know someone who's reached the point where they are dying and will die within weeks or months, um, yeah. that's that's no longer of any it's no longer of any use on a spreadsheet. Uh, you were saying that it, you know it's sometimes treated as well. That's a failure now. The medicine's mm. not worked. The NHS can't do anything. Um, but is it a problem that the state or institutions don't value, don't place any value on making those last few weeks and months as as comfortable and uh, fear free as possible? I think there's a couple of things. I think what we measure matters. You know, that's the kind of mantra of the What Works Network, because what we measure in public policy drives what we do. So, you know, rightly, there's a focus on survival. You know, that's brilliant. Everybody wants to survive. Um, but there are lots and lots of examples in healthcare where what we measure drives some really quite strange behaviour. Uh, so what we're saying is that well-being is, is a brilliant way of thinking and measuring the impact on an individual's whole life that might be more appropriate when you're thinking about living with a terminal diagnosis. I think it's also important to say that people, you know, you don't die immediately, you get a terminal diagnosis. Some people do that, but increasingly because of medicine, people are living sometimes for decades with a terminal diagnosis. I mean, bowel cancer is meant to be a thing that kills you relatively quickly and I'm here nearly three years later. So it's quite a lot of living, normal living that you can do while, you know you're in this space so for me it's been hugely important to keep working we know that working is massively important for well-being but again the assumption is that as soon as you get a diagnosis you want to be signed off um, and we don't even actually know how many people are working in the UK with a terminal diagnosis we don't even know the number of people that we're talking about so yeah you're right this is why we kind of why I my background has driven me to to think let's start with some evidence let's think about what we're measuring let's think about what we're valuing because that actually is a really important way to change the way the systems behave it's uh, given the work that you're doing in extraordinary time is there something that's happened to you that you'd like you know uh, you'd score as a success if it stopped happening to other people an experience that you've been through that 
if, if it could yeah. be sort of ingrained in policy, it wouldn't happen again. I think honest conversations about death and dying. No, no medical practitioner has ever told me I have a terminal diagnosis. I've been told I have stage four cancer. I've had to sign palliative consent forms. And because I'm educated, I understand what that means and I can put the dots together. But people do die with stage four cancer and it comes as a surprise to their loved ones that they're not getting better. People assume that if you're having surgery, if you're having chemotherapy, it will fix you. We are programmed to think that you go to a hospital and you come out better. So honest conversations. And a very concrete example is I had to ask for this DS1500 form, which is the formal notification that you have less than six months to live. I needed that because I was stopping work and I wanted to claim a benefit that all terminally people are entitled to. I rang my doctor's surgery to ask for an appointment to discuss it with my doctor. And I got the form in the post without ever speaking to my GP. Wow. So to see that you know, come through the door, it was, it was a nervous question I had to ask. Do you think I've got less than six months? Do you think, please, you could fill this form in? I left a message with the receptionist and I just got the form in the post. So we need more compassion. We need more honesty. Um, and we need that because it enables and equips people to live well and make decisions. Um, it's, it's not a bad thing to have honest conversations with patients. We're talking about dying well, uh, having been uh, contacted initially by Claire Fisher, Times Radio listener, former civil servant who's living with stage four bowel cancer. She's been sharing her story this morning. Uh, Claire, we've had so many... Andrew says, what a wonderful lady. I'm going through exactly the same prognosis. I was told stage four bowel cancer four years ago. In fact, I had another stage four last year and a major op last August which I'm still recovering from. Paul says, Claire's discussion on end-of-life care is incredibly moving. I can only admire her stoicism. He says it certainly puts all the hysteria over Matt Hancock in, into perspective, which I think is uh, is probably true, probably quite a lot of uh, people uh, thinking that this morning. Someone else says, um, uh, I was listening to your programme. I was diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer in October and I have like the lovely lady on now, been through more chemo, big ops, etc. I could not agree with her more. I also like listening to you, Matt, uh, join chemo as I too am a political geek. I like the idea we've created. That was uh, from Cheryl. I like the idea we've got a small club of political geeks having chemo, listening to the show. And it's part of, you know, I'm doing my, my bit too. Um, uh, bringing Tanny Gray-Thompson in again. Uh, Tanny, you touched on it briefly, this conversation about um, assisted dying. Uh, as a sort of euphemism for euthanasia. Uh, where are we in this sort of being a live thing again? It, it pops up every so often in in uh, in politics and in Parliament. Is that looming again on, on the horizon that, that someone might try and bring this in? It's always been the government, you know, successive governments have said it should be a, a backbench idea. Is it is it is it coming again? So uh, Baroness Meacher has uh, tabled a private members bill. We're expecting probably in September the second reading in September, um, and it sort of bounces slightly back between the High Court. The High Court says it's a decision for Parliament. Um, so, you know, where we are on it is uh, it, it's, it's a difficult conversation because the things that we're talking about this morning is that actually it's hard to make a prognosis. It's hard to make uh, predictions about what end of life is going to be. And what we see in the bill are some, it's very, very top line. It says there will be safeguards, but it doesn't say what the safeguards are going to be. It says um, somebody has to have a settled wish, but it doesn't sort of explain what that is in, in too much detail. And, you know, what we do know is 15 years after the Mental Capacity Act was brought in, it's still not fully implemented. So defining some of those things, I don't think it's right to say, well, we'll, we'll do that in secondary legislation, get the legislation through, and we'll do it at some point further down the line. 
I think people need to really understand what the implications are. And, you know, if you get this wrong and, and somebody dies, there is no going back from, from that. So for me, um, I, and, and I am, you know, come to this from a personal point of view, um, you know, we've talked about or touched on sort of quality in life. Um, I, I get people with regularity coming up to me saying, if my life was like yours, I'd kill myself or I'd want to kill myself or I'd want to end my life. And it's like, well, as a Paralympian, I'm sitting house lords. I have an education. I have a, a very privileged life and people make an assumption that my quality of life is really awful. And, and I find that quite shocking because I know there's a lot of disabled people who, who have a far tougher time in their life than I do. And the other thing um, that I'm, I'm quite often told was that, you know, the worst thing an individual could imagine is being incontinent. Well, I, I am incontinent, but you can manage it. You know, um, I, I only have massive problems if catheters are banned, um, uh, you know, and, and I ma manage, you know, double incontinence in, in quite a practiced way. So it, it, there's, there's all these things. And I think it comes back to fear, fear of death, fear of what the end of life is going to be, fear of pain. Um, there's lots of things get thrown about intolerable, intolerable suffering. And actually, there's no reason for people to die that. If we get palliative care better and right, if we're able to have these conversations, if we're able to join up the Department of Work and Pensions with the NHS to get people the benefits and support they need, we, we should be, you know, making it better for a huge number of people. Oh, blimey. That's, I mean, I don't even know where to start with a lot of that, Tanya. I'm so pleased that you're here to, to, to share some of that. Um, Nancy Hay from What Works Wellbeing. What can we do in practical terms? I mean, I'm not even sure where we would start. I mean, obviously, Matt Hancock's probably not available this morning, but where would we even start? Which bit of the government is the bit that needs to sort of get a handle on this? Um, this is a really good question, actually. Um, the, the Treasury guidance now includes um, ways to value uh, well-being um, of all life stages and valuing the well-being of those around you. And the guidance will become clearer over the next couple of years. But... I mean, Tani's described that we're really bad at predicting how we think we will feel. Um, and we're much better if we're able to value the experience of actually people living it. And that's what the well-being metrics do at their end of life or throughout um, their experience of pain or whatever that might be. And so we can get better at doing this. There is evidence that allows us to do it. There is mechanisms that the Treasury support that allow us to do it. I think um, the idea of a what works centre around palliative care is a really good one. I think if well-being is the goal of policy, which I think it is, um, that one of the things that shifts is that we look at palliative care in a very different way and we make it a higher priority. And this is not just the government, though. It's also delivered by charities and individuals. And we need this information to help us make decisions about our lives. And it needs to be publicly available as a public good. Again, why a What Works Centre is a really good thing. The other thing is, is that um, employers can do a lot, right? So we've talked about how work can help our well-being. It gives us a huge sense of achievement, structure, purpose, connection with other people, which we've probably missed a little bit during the pandemic. But work can help us do it. I think also the how systems operate can also make a difference. It's not just what we do, it's how we do it. And certainly navigating healthcare can be a massive time, um, massive misery-inducing time taking experience 
which I think also could be improved quite substantially. And I think often it's something we go through uh, once or twice in our lives with maybe with a loved one. And actually a system needs to remember this stuff. It needs that memory. It needs that institutional memory to get that knowledge out. And that's what the What Work Centres, I think, do. The last thing I want to say, Matt, is that listening to the radio is a really effective coping strategy. And we found that um, in the pandemic, listening to the radio was fantastic for a whole range of reasons. So I think there's a good case to the Treasury for radio use um, for well-being. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, there's not. Much, it feels like there's not much I can do, but at least that's 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 one. Um, Claire, the final um, word to you and what you'd like people. If people have been listening to this and have been moved by it and of thinking, you know, I think probably everyone listening is thinking about people who found themselves in uh, similar situations. What is what's the conversation that you'd like people to start having after listening to this on the radio this morning? So I think I think have the conversation is the first thing. Thank you so much for having it. Dying is mostly about living. It's mostly just normal everyday living. You know, the very end bit, I'm led to believe, becomes a bit more um, about dying. But the bit that I'm in, the bit that most terminally ill people in is, is fairly normal life. So engage with people, have normal conversations. And the more we have conversations, the better we'll be able to to plan and make our wishes known and access the services that we need. So I think we do need to fix the system, but for individuals, just enjoy living, be honest with each other. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.